there. I'm Courtney. And I'm Emily. And this is the Mostly Awkward Podcast. The place where it's completely acceptable to shock someone to 450 volts. Just kidding. It's not. Don't do that. You're still singing. <laughs> We're recording now, and you're still, and you're still singing Sharon Lewis and Bram. Uh, <laughs> the time has come. Let's talk about conformity. We mentioned this in another episode that we were going to talk about this eventually. I don't remember which one. Maybe it was our need to belong episodes. Maybe. And then you also sang about it in the last one, and then sang about it conformity again. Conformity right dance. So. You don't like my singing. I'm not doing the dance. <laughs> I'm not doing the dance. <laughs> I don't know why I get so excited about conformity. It's just an interesting topic. And you didn't read my notes, right? You said you didn't read No, them. I have no idea. I have no idea what we're climbing into, so I'm just going to fly by the seat of my pants. It's fine. <laughs> okay, good. Because I did a lot of research for this, and I'm kind of excited to surprise you with all my knowledge. All right. <laughs> but you have probably experienced conformity if, for example, at a concert... Everyone starts clapping along to the beat of the music, and you begin to clap too. Or if you've seen someone looking up, so you looked up too to see what they were looking at. Or when your friend yawns, you yawn too. Chimps do that. Did you know that chimps do that too? Yeah, but that's that's not conformity. That's just because someone else is stealing all the oxygen and you want to get some too. <laughs> that's why that happens. Or maybe you hate wearing a tie to work, but it's expected, so you do it anyways. That's also conformity. Uniformity. Uniformity. Our behavior as humans is contagious, and we are natural mimics, and we unconsciously do it. We unconsciously mimic other people's expressions, their postures, their voice tone. This is called the chameleon effect by social psychologists Tanya Chartrand and John Barg from 1999. Shout out to them. And we also feel happier around happy people and sad around sad people. That's called mood linkage. Okay, so I'm going to like pause right here because I haven't read this research, but it uh, I actually remember there being um, a study uh, and specifically around babies. And I think that they were trying to study uh, like what happens when a baby is expecting a certain emotion on someone's face and they don't get it. And so it like does have a lot to do with mirroring because like if they're happy, they want you to be happy. But if you don't respond with that happiness and you just have like a blankness on your face, then the babies would get like deeply uncomfortable Aww. and like start to cry and like <laughs> not know how to handle the situation. Um, same thing where like if they expected you to react like – a baby and its mother and the baby does an interaction and expects the mother to like mother it and the mother doesn't respond then the babies get like extremely upset like and crying and unconsolable because it's not the mirroring reaction that they're expecting so it's just really interesting that like they've already like they've done studies on like babies and stuff with mm-hmm. um yeah expression it really mirroring is, it really is deep in our biology you know we kind of don't even notice it, but we are feeding off of so so much from another person when we're around them, their body language, everything. So 
But let's define it. So what really is conformity? I think that's a good place to start having a solid definition for it. These definitions come from social psychologists Myers, Jordan, and Spencer. So conformity is a change in behavior or belief to match with others around you. So it's not just acting as other people act, it's being affected essentially by how they act. It's acting different than how you would act if you're alone. This is also super interesting because, and I don't know if you're going to touch on this because, again, I haven't looked at any of this, but when you look at, um, because we do this a lot, me and Courtney, we are true crime fans, but when you look at interviews (laughs) with people who have been, like, diagnosed sociopath or psychopath and, like, don't don't have the same um, responses that most people in society have with mirroring and with responding to behaviors and with conforming, you can actually see and like people will like dissect these interviews and talk about how their body language isn't responding correctly um, to what you would expect someone with a, a normally functioning brain situation to respond. And so you can actually see the disconnect between their mirroring of of the interviewers and stuff. And it's just like really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could probably say the exact same thing about awkward people too. Yeah. We broken. We don't know how to do it. <laughs> and I also think that this is really interesting because part of the definition of conformity is acting different from how you would act alone. But I think that it is so difficult to tease that out as humans because it's really hard for us to say where our behavior comes from. You know what I mean? Like, where did that source, what, what, what is the source? So if I have a belief and I act in a certain way from that belief and I'm not, maybe I'm not conforming to the people I'm in a situation with, but I'm conforming to like my family's belief. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, where, how can you tease it out? Like, And humans are so bad at explaining their own behavior. We think that we can do it really good. We think we're like, oh, I'm acting this way because of this. But we are actually really bad predictors at our own behavior. Let me give an example, maybe, to make this make more sense. But So I grew up really thinking that I needed to drink milk, for an example. Maybe this is a controversial (laughs) example, but whatever, I'm going to use it. But why did I think I needed to drink milk? I mean, I saw a lot of those Got Milk commercials growing up. Dairy also... dairy farmers of Ontario. <laughs> I also saw, you know, my parents drinking milk often. So I drank milk, essentially. But then when I got older, I stopped drinking milk. And I just kind of, what feels like on my own, I just stopped drinking it. And if I have milk now at home, it's always oat milk or almond milk. And so what changed that belief, you know, who influenced that? Who am I conforming with there? So was I conforming with my parents when I drank milk when I was younger? And now maybe I saw influencers or something that were vegan, I don't know, and saying that it was harming cows and now I'm conforming to them. I don't know. I just think it's really interesting to kind of like, Humans are so complex and to try and tease out where our behaviors come from and why we conform, it's so interesting, but it's so complicated and it's so hard to do. So this is kind of really the heart of what conformity is. It's like a change in a behavior based on another person or another group influencing us. 
And that's what we're going to look at in this episode and another episode too, because I think this is going to be a two-parter. For example, we're going to look at things like why, given the huge diversity of individuals in a large group, why is our behavior so often uniform? Why, why do we come to these norms in society, these unspoken rules? How do we just know that they exist? And yeah, under, under which circumstances do people conform? Why do they conform? What factors in our personalities predict whether we will conform or not? Are certain people more likely to confer, conform than others? Who resists that pressure, you know? Also, do we ever want to be different? We talked about that in our need to belong, that like being different and standing out is often really troublesome for us. Um, and then I think it's also interesting to look at, like, what does this mean for our awkward turtles out there who have trouble catching on to social cues and conforming? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also... Simply put, is conformity good or bad? You know, are we really just all sheep following each other blindly? So in today's episode, we're really going to lay the groundwork for that. We've defined conformity now and now... Um, oh, was that a cat purr? Aww. Okay, so first of all, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but she has been snoring so loudly that I had to wake her up. And now she's like talking to me because I woke her up and she's mad about it. <laughs> So, sorry, yeah, there's some cat noises in my... <laughs> it's actually so hard to record with cats because they just do whatever they please and you cannot stop them. She just pushed my door open on her own, like my door was shut, and she blasted it open and is now in here snoring so loudly and now she's gonna, she's gonna climb on me. <laughs> so I apologize. Yeah. I apologize for any cat noises you guys hear in these videos. I can't keep her out. <laughs> It is what it is. Yeah, and if you try to keep them out, then they like scratch at the door and it's even worse. So yeah. there's no stopping them. She's like pulling my laptop down now. Stop <laughs> it. But let's start with that question that I just mentioned. So is conformity good or bad? What do you think, Emily? I think that um, there are times when conformity is warranted and necessary and good for society. And I also think that um, if you only have conformity, uh, it would be so very boring. And so I think that it is good and bad and you have to know when the right time to conform is and, and when to and when to be individual and to follow your own path. Yeah, perfect. That is actually what uh, researchers say too. Like simply put, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's neutral. You know, it can be good, for example, if um, it stops people from butting in line at the grocery store because we know those norms and we know not to do that. I love how you brought up butting in line because I know that that is one of your biggest pet peeves. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> but it can be bad if, you know, it makes people join in, you know, racist behavior or something. And it can be neutral when it disposes tennis players to wear white so you know it it really yeah why Ooh, why do they wear white because <laughs> i've seen them fall before and they get back up and the dirt on them is very noticeable <laughs> so just change the color yeah no this is this is the norm emily 
But continuing on that question, because I think that this is super interesting, conformity is also considered good or bad based on where you live, which is really interesting. So to us in Western cultures, like Canada, United States, Europe, I think probably most people listening to this podcast right now, conformity to us does hold a negative connotation. You know, when we think of conformity, we think of things like submissive people, weak people, sheeps following the herd, you know, people who give in to peer pressure, who have no backbone, people who are compliant. So in Western cultures, we really give conformity these negative labels. These values are not prized on this side of the world. Instead, we really prize our uniqueness. We want to stand out. We don't want to be any old regular individual. But on the flip side, in Japan, for example, going along with others is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of tolerance, of self-control and maturity. So to them, conformity is a positive value. They think of things like sensitivity, responsiveness, cooperation, team play, community, acceptance, loyalty. So to them, it's not about being unique and standing out. It's about how they can help those around them and how they can lift up the entire group. I think that's really interesting that it, the, the idea of conformity changes based on what culture that you're in. So you'll probably have a negative connotation of conformity as we talk about it in these episodes because, well, if you're listening from a Western culture, which most of our listeners are from. So yeah, but just uh, keep that in mind going forward. Okay, so there's also several varieties of conformity, so I just want to quickly hop over those just so we can have a little bit more understanding. So sometimes we conform to an expectation or a request without actually believing in what we're doing, and this is called compliance. So have you ever done that, you know, where you're just like, fine, okay, I'll do this, and you do it, but you don't actually believe that that's good or that's the way things are supposed to be done. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know? Yeah, for sure. And a lot sometimes it's it's also about the people I'm with. Like if I know that so and not to make this sound bad, but sometimes like it's a religious thing where if I've agreed to go to a religious situation with someone else who fully believes that faith and I maybe don't, but they're asking me to do something because I'm there, then I will do it because that is respectful of the situation and of what they believe. And even though it doesn't mean anything to me, I'm not going to uh, make it a, an issue. Like, I'm just going to do it because, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. So, yeah, sometimes it, it varies much like dependent on, on who I'm with. Right. Yeah. So that's that one is called compliance when you do that. Another good example I thought about with this was like the mask situation that we had during covid A lot of people, I think, didn't believe that masks were helping, but they did it anyways because they didn't want, you know, to be that one person in public that, well, a lot of people did want to be that one person in public, but a lot of people, they didn't, they just didn't want to bring attention to themselves. So even if they didn't believe in it, they did it anyways. And like, honestly, my whole thought on that situation was who is it hurting to wear a mask? Like, I'm not gonna, I don't enjoy it. But it's not physically hurting me to wear the mask. And if it makes someone else feel better or safer or more comfortable in society for those months that we were required to do it, I was willing to to do that. So, you know, like, that's kind of what it's about, right? Like, if it helps somebody else, even if it's not my jam, I'll do it for a while. Yeah. 
for a while. <laughs> Asterix there. I'm not wearing it forever. So a second type is obedience. So this is when you act in accordance with a direct order. So if someone gives you a, an explicit command, like, go do this, file your taxes by April 30th, walk the I was going to say... I feel like that more so applies to like laws and military situations where you're given like direct commands and Mm -hmm. it is expected that you follow them. Yeah. Yeah. So that type is called obedience. So we have compliance and obedience. And then finally, acceptance. So acceptance um, is kind of like compliance, but it goes one step further. So acceptance is where you also believe it. So you believe in it. You believe it's a good thing to do. And everyone else does it, and you do it too. So if we continue the mask example with this, it means you also are believing. You're like you're believing that masks help people; they stop the spread of COVID. So you're going to wear one in public because everyone else is wearing everyone else in public is wearing one, and you believe that this is good for society too. So it kind of takes compliance that one step further and gives you and really has like the in, inward belief too. Not just the outward doing it, but not believing it, but also, yeah, the acceptance within, too. And this is interesting to think about. A lot of the times, if we just talk about acceptance a little bit for a second, our attitudes normally follow our behaviors. We may think that it's the other way around, but research shows that normally we act away first, and then we start to believe it. So normally acceptance follows compliance. Normally we're first told to do something and then we accept it because we usually become sympathetic to what we've stood up for. And sometimes people become so attached to something that they never change their mind again. And especially after you've expressed something publicly and your values start to form around that behavior that you did, you will kind of get to the point where you defend that thing to the death. You know what I mean? I think this is really interesting because people will literally go to their deathbeds over something rather than just admitting that they were wrong or that they no longer believe something. But this is probably getting a little bit off topic. We'll we'll talk about this, maybe how our values and how, how our attitudes are formed in another episode. But let's move on and let's look at some classic conformity studies. This is really fun research. Love these studies. They're some of my favorites. <laughs> so some of these studies, they, they really revealed such startling findings that people, people were really surprised by, that they became really widely reported and replicated by other scientists, and they kind of became classic. So I don't want to go too deep into the scientific method here, although I would love to, but you really should never just trust one study. Every single study, you know, has flaws built into it. It's just the nature of the world. And only over time, after studies are replicated again and again by scientist after scientist, do things kind of become more clear that we can start to trust them, you know? So... These studies that we're going to talk about are those studies. They get to the point where they've been replicated so many times by so many different scientists that we can really trust this research. But not only that, these studies give us plenty of food for thought. They're very interesting, not only when it comes to conformity, but also human behavior in general, the potency of social factors, 
and even the nature of evil. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yours wasn't very evil. Mine wasn't very evil, but yours was like less evil. <laughs> okay, so the first study I'm going to talk about, I think his name is pronounced... <laughs> Zafar Sharif. <laughs> Sharif. Sharif. So he did his studies in 1935 and 1937. So these were a long time ago, but again, they've been replicated many times by multiple scientists. So he was really interested in figuring out how norms were formed. Like, how does society come to the conclusion about something? How are these norms taken from nothing, essentially, and then formed into something that now every single person does? How does that happen? So in his study, you came alone and you were seated in a dark room. Five meters in front of you, a pinpoint of light would appear. At first, nothing happens, but as you focus on the light, it begins to start moving erratically for a few seconds and then it disappears. So that was the study. And then at the end of that, after you saw this light, you were asked to guess how far it moved. So, and because you're in a dark room, you really have no way to judge distance. So you're kind of not really sure when you give an answer. So maybe you guess 15 centimeters. And then you do the experiment again. And this time, you know, you know what's happening. So you're paying a bit more attention. You're focusing. You're confident. You pay attention to the light. You're asked, how far did it move this time? Okay, 25 centimeters. And you continue this over and over and over again. And then say you have an average response of about 20 centimeters. I'm just giving an example. The next day you return for the same study, but now you're with two other participants in there and they also did the study alone on the previous day. So these are real participants just like you. They did it alone, but now today you're doing it together. You do the study again and you hear them give an answer. They say five centimeters, two centimeters, you're a little taken aback, but you still say you're confident 15 centimeters. Now, if we continue this study and we do it over and over again, do you think that your answer would change? Emily, do you think that your answer would change? I don't know. See, that's hard because you start to think maybe my perception's wrong. Right. If you're hearing other people, that's like that's the tricky part, right? So I don't know. I couldn't say how confident I would remain in my own answer if I'm hearing two other people. If it was just one other person, I think that I would remain confident in what I had said and be like, no, I'm, it's 15, you're wrong. But if there's two people or more than two people saying that, I think it would probably change. Right. So what happened in these studies is that the people did change their answers and they changed them a lot. And over time, a group norm emerged where everyone, every single person in the study was saying that the light moved the exact same distance. Another interesting thing, a year later, these individuals were brought back and tested again and alone, so not with anybody else. And do you think they went back to what they thought before? Uh, no, like you, you definitely wouldn't change <laughs> your answer back. Right. Especially if you knew that like the last time you were so confident in that like larger movement number and then you hear like a smaller number, you're not going to go back to the larger number because now you're like, my, my perception is skewed. Like, I'm not going to. Right. And the participants did. They continued to support the group norm even a year later. So they now believed this norm is what it is, right? But the funny thing is, is that the group norm was false because the light didn't move at all. The light never moved. 
This is actually an optical illusion that they used in the study. It's called autokinetic, the autokinetic phenomenon. So if you're in a dark room and you're staring at a stationary point of light in a dark room, it messes with our eyes. And after a little bit of time, it does look like the light is moving, even though it's not, it's staying still. Taking advantage of a physical deficiency of the human body to make us seem like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that means that the group, the group essentially was per- perpetuating false beliefs, you know? If they felt that it was 15 or 20 centimeters on their own, and then they're with a group of people, and then they change to five centimeters, and then they keep that belief a year later, when really it's it's not correct because the light didn't move at all. So I think this is a really interesting look at how humans kind of find answers to things too, you know? And we do perpetuate a lot of things that are false just because we see other people doing it. I mean, it's like how heavily how heavily we rely on the information that we receive from others, right? And ha- how much weight we put to that. Like, oh, well, 20 other people said the same thing as me, so we must be right because we all believe it. But it's not necessarily true. Right, yeah. Like, how much stock can we put on these group norms that we decide are just truth? Two other scientists, Robert Jacobs and Donald Campbell, they tried this study again in 1961, so almost 30 years later. And this time, they had a fake participant in the study. They wanted to see if there was a fake person there giving a really big, exaggerated estimate, you know, maybe 50 centimeters or something, with how far the light moved, what would happen. So they had a fake person in there, and as you probably would guess, the group norm was a lot bigger this time like the norm now it was this inflated norm because there was this one person in there saying that this is the way it was and slowly people came to agree with him and like not wavering in that confidence and like being like no it's for sure this much and sticking with it especially when other people are saying other things like i can see how that could influence like a group to be like this guy is so confident in what he's saying Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've said before, confident people are believed. But yeah, mm-hmm. and if it's something that's kind of uh, subjective, like you don't really know if you're making a mistake, you know, you don't really, it's something that's a bit ambiguous, you don't really know. So you're more likely to go with people, other people and believe what they're saying. But yeah, without knowing, people can become unwitting conspirators and perpetuating a cultural fraud, you know? This is a lesson that we can take away that our view of reality is not ours alone. We see reality and we understand things based on other people around us. And there's probably many things that we believe to be fact that are exactly the same as that light that never moved. There's some things about um, suggestibility that are hilarious to me, like comedy show laugh tracks. They really capitalize on our suggestibility. I saw this thing on YouTube not too long ago where it was just showing like clips of well-known shows but it was showing them without the laugh track like leaving that laughing out which it sounds so weird because we're so conditioned to hear that that like when you hear it without it just sounds like empty yeah it's yeah, so it's weird so weird and the shows are not funny really like i didn't think they were funny at all and okay i'm going to get hated on by saying this but i don't like friends i don't think friends is funny i never liked it and this was one of the shows that they did without the laugh track and i was like oh my god this is the worst thing i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs> but like even still and like 
not necessarily friends because I do like friends. Um, but <laughs> in like other shows, I'll sometimes notice that like there is a laugh track and it's laughing and I am not finding anything funny about what's going on. So I'm not laughing along with it. And in those instances to me, that laugh track is so obvious that I'm so, yeah, no, I just find that like when I don't find it funny and the laugh track is playing that the laugh track is the most obvious, obnoxious thing. Because it's pointing out to me that, like, they thought that their writing was funny there. Mm-hmm. And it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. So, suggestibility can also be a little bit scary sometimes, too, though, because it can happen on a mass scale. So, for example, there is something in social psychology known as the Werther effect. Um, and this is that things like suicides, UFO sightings, hijackings, Things like that tend to come in waves. They tend to come together. So, for example, following Marilyn Monroe's 1962 suicide, there were more than 200 more suicides that month than normally reported. And this increase only happened in the areas where her suicide was highly publicized. So the more publicized things are, the more kind of copycat situations essentially happened. So I think that this is interesting because it has great implications for society. Like, should we then allow newspapers to report on things like this? You know, if we know that we're going to see a massive spike in these things happening. Yeah, but then you get into like the dangers of censorship, right? Like, what do you keep from the public and what do you not keep from the public? Exactly. I know it's so complicated, but it's just interesting to see how this can happen, you know? I do think that a lot of our news is like over sensationalized and we focus so much on like terrible things that are happening and then more terrible things are happening because of the terrible things that we're focusing on. And yeah, so I don't (laughs) necessarily, I don't necessarily disagree, but I just think that, yeah, you have to be really careful with how far you're going to go with that and, and what kind of censorship you're looking at. Yeah, let's take a look at another study. This was Solomon Ash did some studies in 1955. Okay, so I'm going to lay it out for you. Picture this. You are seated sixth in a row of seven people, and you're told that this study is just a study on perceptual judgments. And what you don't know is that all the other participants that are there, and those six other people, they're in on it. You're the only one there who isn't in Rude. on it. It's rude to do that to someone. <laughs> so the, the experimenter shows you a standard line. It's just a line on a piece of paper. And then he shows you three more lines on another piece of paper and asks you which one of these three lines, A, B, or C, matches the standard line. That's life. also rude. I just... <laughs> well, on. they're really easy. The thing is, okay. if, if you look at them, like it's very clear. You know, it's it's easy. You can very clearly see, you know it's the middle one or whatever that matches. So the five people in front of you, they say the correct line and then you do too. And you're like, okay, this study is very easy. And then they do it again. And it's very easy again. And then you get to the third round. Same thing. Three lines are given. Which one matches the standard line? But then the first person in the line says the wrong answer. And you're like, oh, what an idiot. Like, duh, obviously it's that one. But then the second person gives the wrong answer too. And then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth. And now it's your turn. And you're wondering to yourself, like, am I blind? Am I missing something? Like, 
how did you all just give the wrong answer? It's very obviously wrong. So yeah, how are you to know what's true? Should you trust your peers or should you trust your eyes? Should you trust your peers or should you trust your peerers? (laughs) So I think most people, if you asked them, they would say that they would give the correct answer, right? No matter what anybody else said, they would just give the correct answer. They wouldn't listen to anybody else. But three quarters of the people said the wrong answer, at least once. Three quarters of them. So overall... There was a total of 37% of conformed wrong answers. Ultimately, that is good because it means that 63% of the time people did not conform. But still, if you look at that 37% that people did conform, because also when they did this study with people alone, they got the correct answer more than 99% of the time. So you have people doing this alone, getting it correct always, And then when they're doing it with other people who are giving the wrong answers, 37% of the time they give the wrong answer too. So what does this tell us about human behavior? It really kind of tells us that reasonably intelligent and well-meaning people are sometimes willing to call black white in order to conform. They follow the group. Oh, this is like that. This is like, do you remember that thing where there was that dress picture and it was like, is the dress blue or is the dress like gold? And everybody <laughs> lost their minds over it because it was no both. one could tell it which was, was which. <laughs> both. I saw it both. Yeah, that was so weird to me because I remember like seeing that picture and it looked white and gold to me. And I saw it on somebody's Facebook. Then later, like hours later, I saw that same person's Facebook post. And it looked blue and black to me. And I was like, what? This is the same picture. Yeah, I always, I saw it blue, black, like 98% of the time. And then once, (laughs) one time I looked at it and I was like, oh, oh, it's white and gold. And then immediately I was like, no, it's blue, black again. So weird, right? But yeah, so these two studies that we just discussed, they're interesting because they also involved like no pressure to conform, right? It was just people asking you a simple question and you giving a simple answer There was no, like, rewards for working as a team or no no punishments for individuality or anything like that. So even when there was no pressure, people were still compliant. So with that, the question becomes, how much will people conform if they are then directly and forcefully coerced? Ooh, this is very interesting getting into this because... That's exactly what happened. Oh, I did like a huge paper on this in university. That's exactly what happened in... Are you going to talk about that prison study? No, 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 no. It's different. It, it was um, World War II, and I did a huge paper on Hitler's uh, police battalions. And... I do talk about that a Yes, bit and, how much, um, and how much conformity played into that because... It's it, so it was It was very much about how far they were willing to go... And, yeah. and like, they literally, like, people were murdered and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and they still, they still went along with it because of, of the pressures that were on them. So yeah, it's just very interesting because I did do like a whole paper on this. I have a book. It's great. Okay. <laughs> keep going. Yeah. So like, what can people be pushed to do? It's really fucking scary. Yeah. So this is where Stanley Milgram came in. I love myself some Stanley Milgram. He was, he's 
very famous in the world of psychology. Like if you're in the world of psychology, you know of Milgram and you know of these studies. These are very famous. But the studies were also wildly unethical. <laughs> so like they would not be allowed to be done today. Yeah, because we like have like this ethics board that, you know. Yeah, I think I think he did these back in, I want to say 1955. I'm not sure. But um, I feel bad for the people that participated in them. They were really unethical. But they did give us some really interesting insights. So let me share what happened. Picture this, Emily. But also, like, keep in mind that we don't necessarily support the methods used. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) This is terrible. Keep going. So two people come to the lab. One is a random participant, and they came because they saw about the study in a newspaper ad, essentially. But the other one is a fake actor. Of course, that's not known to the participants. So they arrive, these two people arrive, and they're greeted by the experimenter, who is a dude who who is actually Stanley Milgram. He's a guy in a very prestigious looking lab coat. He looks very professional. He exudes the air of authority. And the experimenter explains that this, this, uh, these studies, by the way, happened at Yale University in the United States, so a very well-known university. Um, And the experimenter explains that this is a very important pioneering study on the effect of punishment on learning. So it requires one of the participants to teach a list of words to the other participant and to punish any errors by delivering a shock of electricity that will grow in intensity with each wrong answer. We just electrocuting people now. It's fine. (laughs) So to assign the roles, they draw slips out of a hat, except, so one of the slips would say, um, well, what they think is that one of them says learner, one of them says teacher, except they actually both say teacher, and the actor just pretends that his says learner. So he's like, oh, I got the learner one. So it really is always the real participant that's always the teacher. I'm going to refer to them as that from now on, the teacher and the learner. So the teacher is given a little sample shock, just so he can feel what it feels like. He's just given a little 15-volt shock. And then he sees the actor go into a second room, and he gets strapped to a chair, and electrodes are placed onto his wrist. So he's kind of like in a chair, in another room, but strapped in. And then the teacher and the experimenter, they return to the main room where the teacher, he takes his place before this big shock generator. And there's switches on this shock generator that range from 15 volts, his little sample volt, all the way up to 450 volts. And they go up in 15 volt increments. So that means there's 30 different buttons, essentially, going all the way up from 15 to 450 And the switches are labeled too. So they're labeled things like slight shock or very strong shock or danger, severe shock, and so forth. And the 450th volt is just labeled XXX. That means you're dead. It's a death (laughs) shock. So the experimenter tells the teacher to move one level higher on the shock generator each time the learner gives a wrong answer. And if you flip a switch... The lights flash and electricity buzzing sounds happen. So it really does seem quite real. Now, as for our actor in the chair in the other room, he actually, of course, wasn't getting shocked. It was fake, 
but the teacher didn't know that. So the plan, so they made a plan beforehand um, where the actor would do essentially the same thing each and every time. So if the teacher complied, the actor was going to start grunting at around 75 volts, you know, so like, ooh, oh. <laughs> Stings a little. <laughs> at 120 volts, he was going to start shouting that the shocks were painful. Like, ow, that hurts. Ow, that was painful. <laughs> you have people living in your home with you and you're shouting like a lunatic. I love it. <laughs> at 150 volts, he would cry out, experimenter, get me out of here. I don't want to be in this experiment anymore. At 270 volts, the plan was that his protests would become screams of agony. He would just start screaming. At 300 and 315 volts, he would refuse to answer questions. And the experimenter would say that a refusal to answer the question should be treated as a wrong answer. At 330 volts, the actor was to fall completely silent. So again, remember this goes up to 450. So at 330, he's falling completely silent. And the plan for the experimenter was that if the teacher, you know, pleaded and wanted to stop the experiment and said he didn't want to hit the buttons anymore, then the experimenter in the lab coat would say one of four things. He would say, please continue or please go on. The experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue and you have no other choice, you must go on. Okay, so now I've set the scene. Before I tell you the results, Emily, how far do you think you would go? So it's problematic, right? Because those phrases, honestly, I think that would most likely get extremely uncomfortable when the person said they wanted to be removed from the experiment. Like that's where like I would start to be like, this isn't right. So let's see, that was that was at 150 volts that he would start and then, to say that. And, and then this goes I w- up to 450. I would like to believe of myself that if someone starts screaming in pain, I would Saying refuse. they want to stop. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I like to believe about myself <laughs> that if I was in that situation and someone was that uncomfortable, I would be like, what what is the worst case scenario if we stop this? Because I'm done. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. Like, Because you're hurting someone. Yeah. Like, what? Is the world going to end if I stop shocking this dude? So I like to think that that's the point where I would be like, No. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Right. Well, that's what Stanley Milgram thought too. He thought that people wouldn't go that far. He actually described this study to like over a hundred psychiatrists, university students, like a whole bunch of people. And they all said that they would stop kind of around the same place that you stopped. Like when people start saying they want to be out of this experiment and they don't want to do it anymore. And everyone said that absolutely nobody would continue all the way to 450 volts. And Stanley Milgram, because he expected a low obedience rate, actually, what you talked about with World War II, this study was first conducted at Yale University in the United States, and Milgram expected nobody would do it. So he wanted to then go to Germany after and do the same experiment in Germany after World War II and see, you know, is there a difference in these people that can explain why World War II happened, essentially. So that's kind of what Stanley Milgram wanted to do. But dude had to stop the experiment. He had to stop. (laughs) Okay, and I was going to say, so this is going to sound bad, but I was, like, as I'm thinking about it, too, and, like, I like to think that that's the point where I would stop. 
But because you've only administered that little 15 volt, like whatever, and that's all the person has as a reference point to what they're, this other person's feeling. Like when, when it's not happening to you, it's so much easier to just be like, okay, and keep mm-hmm. going. And that's mm-hmm. the scary part. Yeah. And because you're going up just by 15 each time, you know, you've already given one that was just 15 volts lower. Like what's the harm in You've already, you know, you kind of like, you're moving up slowly, but well, let me tell you the results. So 65% of people went all the way to 450 volts. That's more than half all the way to the end, all the way to the end. That's insane. Isn't it? Yeah. And Milgram was like fucking shocked by this. He was like, I can't believe people are doing this. So he actually started, he added an extra thing in to a later experiment where he had the actor say things like before they even started the, the study, he, the actor would say like, I have a little bit of a heart condition. So I'm a little bit scared to get shocked. And then during the experiment, he'd be like, my heart hurts. Like, and how and many people still kept going. <laughs> of people went all the way to the end in that case. So it's scary, right? It's really scary. I think it also has a lot to do, again, with those phrases because the way they're worded. So the first one, like, please continue, like, whatever, you could easily Mm -hmm. ignore that. But when it says something like the experiment requires, like, okay, so now we've got a requirement. Mm -hmm. And then the absolutely essential one. I think that's the one where you're like, that's a dangerous one to use because it's absolutely essential that you continue is basically like saying, okay, like there's not another option. Mm -hmm. And then the, you have no other choice. You must go on. Yeah. Okay. Right. And yeah. And that's, and people just believe it and they do it. And I'm sure if you're in, you know, I'm sure that that's what Hitler told people too. You have no choice. This is you your have duty. a person in a position of authority telling you that that's it. That that's the only choice. Exactly. So, what can we take away from this? It's scary, but people obey, and they obey authority to the point that it's scary. Milgram, of course, got a lot of slack for doing these studies. He had a lot of critics, but he did continue on to do a couple other similar studies where he varied some of the factors. And he found that there were four things that really predicted whether people would obey or not. So the four things were the victim's emotional distance, the authority's closeness and legitimacy, whether or not the authority is institutionalized, and the liberating effects of a disobedient fellow participant. So let me just dive into those a little bit. So the first one was the victim's distance. So people obeyed the most when they could not see the actor. So if they couldn't see him, he was in um, another room and they closed it off and they couldn't see him getting shocked, they obeyed the most. When they could hear no complaints from the actor, nearly all of them continued to the end. That makes sense, right? You're not hearing those complaints from him. So yeah, basically all of them continued to shock the guy until the very end. I think it was like 93%. When the learner was in the same room, it was only 40% of people that obeyed. So it did go down when the learner was in the same room. When the participant was the one who actually had to, he was forced to physically put the learner's hand onto a shock plate, like when he had to physically do that to the actor, only 30% of people complied. So 
I mean, still 30% went all the way to 450 volts, but... I mean, but it's also, like, a tactile involvement, mm-hmm. right, with, with someone who's in distress, so you're, like, that's so much more of a yeah. close yeah. situation. Yeah, so proximity and your closeness with the person really impacted whether you would comply or not, and I think we see this in real life, too. Like, it's a lot easier to be mean to people on the internet, for example, than in real life, you know? Throughout history executioners have been depersonalized with like black hoods over their heads yeah so even with world war ii many german soldiers they would refuse to shoot people outright you know so they built gas chambers which are a little bit indirect want to just asterisk that though because they did still shoot them yeah they did but they they quite a fair fair few amount of them did still (laughs) shoot them that is true but from what i've read um Compliance was a lot lower with that. <laughs> but on the side, on the positive side, people do also act more compassionately to people when they're humanized than too. So, you know, if you're reading a story on GoFundMe, people donate. They, they read a story. They hear things. Same with charities. They very smartly feature, like, a compelling photograph of a hungry child. You know, they don't just say, like, a million kids are going hungry. They'll say, like... This is Sam, and Sam is dealing okay. with this. So, like, dog shelter commercials get me? Yeah. The hungry kid ones. I... <laughs> Dude. <laughs> but, I mean, imagine, if you had to choose between preventing 250 people from dying in, like, Timbuktu, or preventing the death of a close friend, I think everyone would choose their close friend, you know? Didn't you just, like, send me a meme about that recently? Was that you? Where it was like... Yes. Yeah. I did. Yeah, the baby one. Yeah, where it was like, <laughs> you have to choose the teth- death of 10 random children or the death or of your, your pet. pet. And somebody was like, yeah, it was pretty easy, even though I don't have a pet. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I was like, oh my God. Yes, <laughs> I'm so not terrible. that heartless, but yes. <laughs> so the second... Um... The second factor that predicted was the physical presence of the experimenter or his um, his perceived authority, essentially. So when Milgram gave commands by telephone, compliance dropped 21%. Although this is funny, many people lied and said that they were still obeying. Because how can you tell, <laughs> right? Like, are you in the room yeah. with me? No. <laughs> the authority had to be perceived as legitimate. So in one study, the experimenter had to leave, and then, like, a little lowly clerk had to come and take over for him. That poor clerk. <laughs> <laughs> and 80% of people refused to comply with the clerk. So they didn't. And people were also not polite to the clerk like they were with the experimenter. Like, one dude even threw the clerk across the room. I know, I just read that and my whole face was like, oh, oh, this poor guy. Oh, can you imagine if that was like a real, like, if it was a real clerk and they just, I have to go in and take over for the professor and then you get thrown across the room. Oh, no. But people were very polite to the experimenter. Um, The third factor was uh, the institutional authority. So as I told you, these studies were conducted first at Yale University, a very prestigious, well-known Ivy League school in the United States. But they tried doing the study where they rented out a random office building and they just called it like Research Associates of Bridgeport. Just some sketchy dude downtown telling you to shock some other sketchy dude. No, thanks. (laughs) 
And in that one, only 48% of the people complied all the way. So, I mean, it is still half, but it did go down. Um, and lastly, there are liberating effects of group influence. So in one study, Milgram had two additional actors in there that were to support the teacher. And during the study, both actors defied the experimenter and refused to continue. And then the experimenter would tell the teacher to continue, and they didn't. 90% of them refused to comply. So only 10%. So that's kind of cool. You know, we have liberating effects where if someone else stands up, we feel confident to stand up to. It's also how you very easily develop a mob mentality, though. So careful there, too, kids. <laughs> Things can go either way. Yeah, either way. we just have really unpredictable <laughs> bunch of little things running around this earth trying to pretend like we know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, so not only do these experiments show us that compliance can take precedence over our moral sense and over what we want to do. But I think it also shows us that it's really hard for us to predict our behavior, you know? Every single person said that they would stop, that they would never go to 450 volts before they did this. But 65% of people did. So, you know, that's... That's interesting. But honestly, even like if I was a student of that guy and he was asking me that, I think at the time I would have looked at that and been like, with those specific statements that you're saying and like using the university's authority as your backing, I can see how people were like, okay, yeah, let's keep going. This guy says it's good. Let's do it. But that could also be hindsight bias too, because I know what happened <laughs> in World <laughs> War II and I'm like, eh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> History gives us some nice examples of this, but, well, I think that this is a solid basis of the knowledge of conformity for us, and we're getting into this episode, so we're going to stop here, and we're going to go on to part two, and in part two, we're going to dive into what predicts conformity and talk about why people conform, who conforms, and things like that, but I want to leave you with a really loaded question before we end this oh i thought of a loaded baked potato when you said that and like <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh, loaded question not loaded get... potato <laughs> i might have to go make myself a potato after like this. i want bacon so, like... i want sour cream <laughs> i want it split open and fluffy Especially like they do at wendy's this episode like we just took in some sad information and i'm hungry so <laughs> i'm gonna go make a potato now okay but here's the loaded question do you think someone who is socially awkward would be more or less likely to conform to Stanley Milgram's studies? Do you want me to answer it or do you just like, want to? <laughs> I have two answers. It, both. You have two answers. Well, I think both. maybe we can answer this next time. We can think about it and we can answer it next time because, yeah, that is a loaded question. That's hard. And that is, I don't know, something that we're, we're also just giving our own opinion on, right? So... We will see in the next episode the factors that tend to predict whether people will conform or not. So maybe we'll have a better understanding then. So let's leave you with that loaded question. You can think about it. And we will come back next week to continue with this conformity chat. This very yeah. bright, happy chat. <laughs> Listen, I think we made it pretty light. It was There was some levity in there. We tried. We tried. <laughs> All right, let's go make baked potatoes. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening. If you're mostly awkward and want to hear more, please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes of the Mostly Awkward podcast. New ones are out every Tuesday, and they're available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to chat? Email us at mostlyawkwardpod at gmail.com or follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Reddit at mostlyawkwardpod or Twitter at mostlyawkpod. For a full list of episodes, more deets, or to see what's coming next, visit our website, mostlyawkwardpod.com. This has been a presentation of Mostly Awkward Media. See See you next week. week!